You could look at anything that continues to pop up in your dreams, regrets that you have that you can't shake. These things are smoldering in our minds and we can't seem to put it out. We can't figure out whether whether to run towards it or run away from it. And it's all those sort of dichotomies and uncertainties that fed into writing the lyrics. This is Champagne is also a band podcast. One songwriter, one song. I'm Sven, your host for a journey into the music of Champaign-Urbana. Recorded in the Blue Box studio with a songwriter from the Champaign-Urbana music scene, past or present. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to be a part of the Champagne Showers podcast network. Okay, so welcome to Bonus Episode 8, where I talk with former guest Mike Carpenter of the band Decadence. We talk about his upcoming album, Fever Dreams, dropping August 21st on Bandcamp and other streaming services. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome to Champagne is also a band podcast. Today I'm going to be talking with Mike Carpenter from episode 37 about his upcoming album, Fever Dreams. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back. I know the last time that we we were able to meet in the studio and then we did have a quick phone conversation, I think in April or May, but um, it's been a long, what would it be? I guess six months since we sat up in that studio talking about an older track and uh it was a good bit of timing that we went into the studio when we did so that six months later we could be having this conversation even if it is via zoom yeah yeah so but i appreciate you taking the time today and just talk about your upcoming album fever dreams is set to be released on august 21st and you're going to be releasing it on Bandcamp and probably iTunes, the the whole gambit of digital platforms. Yeah, they'll be they'll be all over those. And and the Bandcamp is useful just because we know that that money comes directly to us. I think if we got like a million plays on Apple, we might get a ten dollar check. But at least through Bandcamp, um, that is a very immediate way. So we'll, we'll direct people towards there, and uh, we'll even have the night before on Thursday, August twentieth, we'll do a Facebook and YouTube live stream with some trippy visuals and all that kind of thing and uh, try to give people first crack at Bandcamp to purchase the album that Thursday. Awesome. So, this is not an easy time to be recording an album. Yeah. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Let's talk a little bit about what went into making this happen. Like, you basically started recording this album March 6th, which was the beginning of the pandemic and at least you know, only, I would say that it was about two weeks just before the full shutdown, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was a full week before Friday, March 13th. I remember waking up at like six in the morning to go to Schnooks and beat the crowd and stock up before the inevitable shutdown because it felt like it was looming. But it's crazy how this was essentially five days before the NBA called it season, before Tom Hanks got coronavirus. And and that was a really weird line of demarcation when it became real. But before that, everything was quaint and birds were chirping. And just like that morning mood song is playing as we're heading into the studio on Friday, March 6th. And then very quickly, all of a sudden, it's like, well, it's a good thing we did go in there when we did because otherwise we would not have had guide tracks to work with. And... Then, you know, you essentially hole up in the basement for the next few months and get the guitars and the vocals and, and flesh it out. But man, it, it was fortuitous timing because for one, it gave me something to do. And for another, if we would have waited any longer, it probably would have been postponed for who knows how long. Just to be clear, you recorded those guide tracks and drums, it sounds like, at Perennial Sound Studio. With Ryan Groff? That's right. So we, we did a little bit something different with the recording process this time. I had 12 songs that were written, and some of them were as old as 2015. Some of them were more recent. And to kind of get this thing going, I went in myself to record drum and bass guide tracks and figured that we would 
kind of deconstruct the rest of the recording process. So we would work on them in our rehearsal space. We'd rehearse through them and then inevitably go back in and do it full band. But, you know, March and April are going and I'm, I got a basement studio for the other stuff and we just start layering guitar tracks and vocal tracks and writing lyrics and, and really kind of completing these things to the point where, uh, it was essentially done in June. And, and now it's really just been kind of, uh, embellishments and little bells and whistles here and there. But the, the core of this thing was done about two months ago, just because there was a two and a half month period where every day, essentially, I was able to come down to the basement and try new things out. There was, I wasn't on the clock. We weren't paying anything. And a lot of cool ideas sprang from that too. So it, it was really making lemonade out of the lemons that was this quarantine and being forced inside that really gave me a lot of time to flush things out that had not been flushed out before. Yes. How did you coordinate with the, the rest of the band to get the, the parts together and uh, make it happen? I didn't want to jump in automatically naming some of the songs, but but one of the things that I thought about is like the, the song Everything Goes, there's a considerable uh, amount of like a, an instrumental vamp at the end. You're, mm-hmm. you're, kind of, you're kind of building and you're also kind of exiting. I thought about like how you gave that to the rest of the band and then kind of fleshed it out from there. Because that's, I feel like there was an awful lot of like give and take happening there. And that's usually one of those things where if you're going to record it, the best way to record it would be to get like a live take. But I feel like it came through really, really well. Like it does feel responsive. It does feel like you're listening to one another. And so, can you describe kind of how that that process was done in order to give yourself that that i don't know that that sensitivity so this this was where things got weird is we did recongregate in late may early june and we listened to the tracks and we kind of had a plan developed but just we realized at a certain point that the deconstruction thing wasn't going to work and it, it was sort of like best laid plans and then all of a sudden it's like, well, I don't know if we can really swing this and accomplish what we want to accomplish. And it had already gotten, the ball had been pushed so far up the hill that this is an unorthodox record in that that track that you mentioned, Everything Goes. All, all the tracks on that particular track are me. So the drums and bass, for example, and that's, that is one constant is through this record, just because again, we pushed that ball up the hill so far. The guide tracks stayed. And I know when we talked back in, I think it was late April, early May, I even sent you what I thought was a working track. And we we got to a certain point and said, okay, this circumstance was what it was because we got so far holed up in my basement studio kind of layering these things. uh, We look forward to getting back to like the elegantly wasted model where we get into a room and we're all jamming and we work off each other that way. But for this one, that track and, and all the others, the drums and the bass are what was recorded March 6th. And then the guitars for that particular track that you mentioned, there's, I think, 28 total tracks. It's it's a behemoth. I'm happy that you mentioned it because, to be honest, that's the one track I'm most leery about. I'm just not sure about it, but it's it'll stay. But that was one where the focus was on getting a lot of different guitar tones, switching pickups, messing with the pedal board, and trying to make it sound almost like this orchestral amount of guitars on it. So... The interplay did come in the last month and a half, though, working with Mike, the other guitarist, and getting his tracks on it, because as we talked about back in February for I'd Rather Be Lonely, that track, there is a signature part of the band's sound that is tied up to his guitar playing, and we're getting those finishing touches on the record, so he is on it. Uh, he'll be on all 12 tracks, um, but the drums and bass guide tracks from back in March are what stuck for all 12 of them. And it wasn't planned that way. Uh, Certainly, you'll hear that the drum tracks are very rudimentary and straightforward. There's not a lot of woe moments that there would normally be for drum tracks on a Decadence record. Um, But the flip side of that is I think there's been enough time to layer other things on the songs where the drums don't get in the way. And that's okay sometimes for them to just sort of lay the foundation and then just kind of sit in the pocket. Actually, I... I like the way that the drums came out in this and I don't know okay. if it I I wouldn't cool. necessarily like try to even compare it to other decadence albums but considering that they were recorded as kind of a scratch track or a guide yeah. track 
they sound really good. So tip of the hat to whomever did the engineering, the mixing. They they sound very intentionally finished drums, which Excellent. I think is kind of neat, you know. Well, and that's that's credit to Ryan Groff in the studio. And he, he's got a really good uh, Gretsch drum set in there that... It, it sort of lent itself to a more basic style of playing because there's a rack tom and a four tom. It's not like a, a nine piece set. It's very straightforward. And what that forced me to do on March 6th going in there was the added fact that I thought these were just going to be guide tracks is just play very straightforward. Don't get in the way, essentially, and make sure that, you know, you're, you're keeping time and you aren't rushing and you aren't slowing down. So they, they accomplished that. But a lot of it, you know, in terms of the sound quality, that is one thing I'm, I'm very happy about with this compared to other releases is that just like anything, you learn over time about mixing, what frequencies are trouble frequencies that can tire out the listener's ear, what frequencies really help certain instruments pop. And the drums in particular, I, I'm glad how crisp they turned out. The kick drum, you, you can feel it. And the snare drum cracks and the cymbals are present, but not like, you know, ear splitting. So all those things that were problems with early mixes of Decadence Records, I, I spent enough time just mixing things and, and reading things and consuming them to figure out, okay, this works a little better than that. And it's not a perfect science yet, but it, it's getting better. So I, I am pleased with how the sound came out on it. You laid down the the drums and the bass as kind of the guide track. Was that the bass that you laid down for Dirty Little Secret? Yes. There's two components to that. So the song proper, so let's say after the minute intro, the song proper, that's the bass lick that I laid down March 6th. That was a riff that we've had, I think, since 2017. And then the, the tricky thing with that was figuring out an intro that is ominous, that can kind of build and get a little tension going to it. And initially, there was like a drum loop kind of thing that I laid down huh. that sounded very very similar to another song that we did. And I was speaking with Alan, our old bass player, and whenever we can gig again, he will be our bass player again, but running things through him. And he said, well, try to get like a synth bass, like a bubbly synth bass going on. Get rid of the drum loop. And that was where that particular thing came through, not with a bass, but with... De detuning the guitar down to a really low, low E flat, and then adding another octave down pedal and just finger tapping it. And that leads to the boom, 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 boom. Oh. Now, the cool thing is... So, that's not actually a bass? That's not that's not a bass. It's, it's kind of taking a page from... This is not the only White Stripes track to do this, but Seven Nation Army, not a bass guitar. That's him you know, doing some sort of effect on that guitar, but it still has that kind of quality to it. And I don't know if he finger picked it or what, but yeah, that that was a strat plugged into the pedal board, multi-effect pedal board, octave down, through the Marshall, went with the bridge pickup and just kind of tapped it with my thumb to give it a softer bump, 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 and filter that through a few things on... Acid Pro, which is the, <laughs> the software I've been using for the last decade. And then, uh, yeah, it, I was pleased with how that turned out because it has a synth bass kind of bubbly quality to it. Well, it's it sounded like I mean actually funny enough I wrote in my <laughs> in my notes like next to Dirty Little Secret I wrote Dirty Little Bass because it has a very <laughs> like uh, I I don't know yeah it's it is ominous it does have an ominous quality but it also sounds. I mean, it sounds like a bass, but it sounds very um, intentional. And that's why I was like thinking that it would have been surprising for you to have that much forethought when in the initial recording to think of having that kind of sound because it sounded very... It was so intentional that it sounded like you had spent hours thinking about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and, and to that point, uh, you know, and that's one example where when I went into the studio March 6th, the intro for Dirty Little Secret, I played all the measures that I needed to on the drums and figured, I'll take this, I'll throw it through some sort of filter that'll make it sound like a hip-hop loop. Some resonant filter or something like that that'll make it sound like it's coming from a cheap radio. Tried that, it sounded... I don't know, it, like it's been done. This idea that you go from like a a drum loop and then all of a sudden the drums come crashing in, you know, with no fil filter on it. And that was what it initially was. But it, it didn't 
pack the same punch. It didn't raise any tension. Uh, the drum loop itself wasn't very creative. Alan has just a really good musical sense, and that was one thing that he suggested. Now, the other problem, I'm glad he wrote Dirty Little Bass because I, I, I mentioned that song title to a few friends, and immediately they think back to, I forget the name of the band, but you know, 2003, 2004, there was a pop punk hit. I don't know if it was AFI or whoever it was that, that did Dirty Little Secrets. I'm like, no, it's not that. So if anybody was wondering, that's Dirty Little Secret by the All-American Rejects. And it made me pause before <laughs> I actually titled it that. Yeah, no, that, that was an intro that kind of came off cool. And I love, I think back to old rock intros like Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. And I know that that one goes for like three and a half minutes, but it just, you know, everything's raising and then the drums crash in and it's like one of the coolest moments. So that, that was kind of the template for it. And that's where mixing that intro very low. So if you're listening to it in the car, all of a sudden when it does kick in, you're like, whoa, okay. Now we're going. The one thing that I noticed about Decadence, I feel like the writing style is always... I mean, every song, and I can't specifically name every song and then compare it, but I feel like it is always an homage to pure rock and roll, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there is... You mentioned before, like, Led Zeppelin, you're a fan of Tom Petty, you were a Tom Petty cover band. I, I, I just feel like you always have a sense of a reference or that there's something about the form that you are able to pull out and and put into each of these songs. And I was just curious, do you, when you write songs, do you compare them or do you have like, when you start putting them together, you're like, oh, this sounds exactly like, this sounds like something Led Zeppelin would do or sure. this is kind of ACDC. I'm just curious if some of those concepts have kind of popped in while you were putting this together and maybe even some of your earlier work as well but more specifically this this album you mentioned acdc and i'm glad you did because there's two songs in particular that are very acdc and uh, one of them is the single out of your head which we put out about a couple weeks ago. And a good friend of mine who we've been to an ACDC show together, he, he knows the catalog well. There's a song by ACDC called Gone Shootin'. And it's very spare bass and drum track. And then the guitars stay further up on the neck. Not very chord bass, but they're more just hitting like a fifth. And that's what me and Mike do guitars on uh, Out of Your Head. And they blend very well. And it's got an ACDC kind of stomp to it. And also this 4-4 disco thing in the bridge. Um, there's another song later in the album called Masquerading, which is another ACDC song. And that specifically had to be moved very far on the track list away from Out of Your Head because they're both based on these sort of tribal drum beats, a lot of toms, and these guitar riffs that are sustained chords or fifths that are very ACDC-like. And the ACDC thing that is such a... It can even be called a rip, because it is kind of ripping this off. Early ACDC tracks, they would do this trick where when they really go full blast, a shaker comes in. A shaker to add to the percussion. Uh -huh. So you listen to High Voltage, that album, the shaker's all over it. And in Masquerading, from the bridge to the end, the final minute or so, this shaker comes in to really propel that thing forward. That is a total... Homage, I guess, to George Young, who was their producer back in the day. That was something he came up with to really get songs like uh, High Voltage and It's a Long Way to the Top if you want to rock and roll. Get that shaker in there in the last like quarter of the song to get it a good driving kind of song. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of that. And there is... But one thing that over the last 10 years we, we've gotten better at is checking to make sure that it doesn't go full on derivative. So like I I am a sponge, you you absorb what you listen to. That's okay. I just know that early tracks of ours it's like, oh, that's us trying to be that band or that's us trying to be this band. Uh this one is more kind of an amalgamation of all those sorts of factors and even the ACDC songs have other elements to them where it's not a full on, you know, copy of something that those guys did. So, yeah, but I'm glad you brought that up because that was specifically ACDC was on the brain um, writing and mixing those two tracks. COVID-19 got you down. You looking for some music, some video games. Well, Exile Main Street still has all the things you need. New and used LPs, CDs, and video games. Exile Main Street still has something for any music enthusiast and old-school gaming devotee. 
Exile Main Street is taking orders, making deliveries, and pickups by appointment. They can find just about any music or video game you need. Check out their website, exilemainstreet.com, for links to their Discogs page for new additions. You can also contact them via Facebook Messenger to see what they can find for you. They can also be reached on Instagram, Twitter, email, or phone at 217-398-MAIN. That's 217-398-6246. We've already dove into the songs themselves, so why don't we kind of pick out a few songs and kind of talk about the process for that. Sure. Like what what went into and what was the thought behind it. I picked three that are ones that kind of spoke to me and I felt were good points in this record. So like Dirty Little Secret, we already talked about, mm-hmm. Face in the Crowd, and then ah. uh, Love Kept Getting in the Way. Ah, um, Country. Gotta have a yeah, country track. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it just, that one actually, I mean, yeah, why don't we, I mean, don't mean yeah, to just skip forward to that. It seemed different than some of the other tracks. So, what brought out this kind of country vibe for you <laughs> on "Love Kept Getting in the Way"? Like, what what brought that about? And then, or did it just it just fit? It just the, made sense. It somehow fit. And before I even went into the studio, I knew what twelve tracks we were going to work on. And I often will write a track list before we even go. Uh, and, and that might seem counterintuitive, but I think what that helps me do is figure out, is there a song that just doesn't fit? And Love Kept Getting in the Way, I think its placement is crucial because if if you view the 12 tracks as a side A and a side B, Face in the Crowd in side A, that's the longest song we've ever done. It's seven minutes plus. It's got a big outro and it just fades out and you have a little bit of a pause before you get into side uh, B. And there's three songs in a row, Ghost All Over This Town, Fever Dreams, and Love Kept Getting in the Way, that even as electric as Ghost All Over This Town is, or the Spanish flamenco kind of stuff of Fever Dreams, those three songs, that triad is kind of folksy, I guess, in nature, the the lyrics especially and the themes with it. And Love Kept Getting in the Way is the third one is this little two and a half minute i mean there's a couple there's three tracks that are sub three minute songs on this album and that was one written back in 2015 that was just kind of an homage to old country and then in figuring out how to bring that to the album and still have it fit but still retain its countryness i listened to um i've lost it which is a song by lucinda williams and it's a great country tune and it's got a great beat just a very like back in the pocket sort of beat and i figured if i can play the drums with conviction like just actually play like if phil rudd from acdc had to come in and play on a country track okay maybe he'd do something like this and that would keep it from getting too uh sugary sweet or anything like that so that was one that had been around for a while it came together it was one of the more difficult ones doing the guitar tracks because oddly enough sometimes the simpler the song the more you're listening for any little flub and you say, yep, got to run it again. Yep. Got to run it again. But when the finished product came out, the guitars, there's three of them on the mix that blend into each other. We got a nice little finger picked guitar solo. It's got a little Jerry Garcia in it and it fades ends in D and then with, before you can even blink, it goes into the ACDC masquerade and, drop D stomp. And that was the idea is we go from this one extreme to the other because that chord can go directly into that. So uh, I I really enjoy that song. It's a good summer afternoon driving down a country road kind of thing and certainly a country homage, but not in a sort of, you know, the Stones would do a country song tongue in cheek. They'd poke fun at it, you know, but they could pull it off. Uh, This is not poking fun. This is like, all right, let's, let's try in earnest to do a tear in your beer kind of song. So I'm glad you brought that up because that is one that, you know, in the 12 tracks might get lost in the shuffle a bit, or it might be in the case of you listening to it, that was one that you picked out and thought, oh, that's okay. That came out of nowhere. That's kind of cool. So I, I hope that it's the latter 
the reaction that people have to it. I guess I, I tend to gravitate towards the like more mid-tempo mm-hmm. kind of tunes that are, I don't know, more on the legato side or, or just more... I, well, maybe that's not true. I, I just, I, I just kind of noticed that with the ones that I kind of picked is, sure. is like, I'm like, you know, they're just not straight rock and roll is what it feels like. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's something. It's like not even, not even like a ballad or anything. It's just they have, they're a little bit more, you know, contemplative. You know, yeah. With these twelve songs, you know, I move from the side A side B kind of template to these trios, these these triads of songs. A, B, C, D. And when I think of it that way, the opening three are all in E. They, uh, on the final record, and I don't know if the files I was able to send you, if you were able to, I think they were separate, but there is a fade from Out of Your Head into Dirty Little Secret. And by the time Dirty Little Secret ends on whatever vinyl reissue we may have in five years, uh, that would be the end of side A. Okay, now we go to side B. That is much more of a uh, everything goes, wasted time, facing the crowd, um, three songs that sonically are very disparate from one another, but lyrically are all intertwined and facing the crowd is sort of the, uh, that one is as personal as anything on the album. The third set of three would be the folksy kind of stuff. And then the final three goes in, begins with two drop D rockers, including the damage kind, which is bluesy. And then the final track is just the kitchen sink. We got chimes. We got piano. We got monk chorus voices. I mean, it's no code. It's just this. All right. We're going to end the album and we're going to throw every trinket in this one. So there's a bit of an in joke with no code because in a high school band, one of my very good friends to this day, I was working on a mix for one of our songs, this sophomore year of high school. There was this drum intro kind of thing, and I had a cowbell, and I so badly wanted to get a few cowbell strikes in this thing. So I send in the mix, and there was just this, and we had this AOL chat window open, and he says, dude, get rid of the freaking cowbell. And I said, no, man, it like adds some atmospheric stuff, it, you know, it, it jungle theme. And he's like, no, you need to get rid of the cowbell. So the end joke with this was th- that final song, No Code. I mentioned the chimes, the piano, auxiliary percussion. It is dense. It is unapologetically. Um, <laughs> here's another toy. I mean, uh, and that was I, I specifically sent it to that friend saying, OK, we had the cowbell discussion. What would be your criticisms of this one? And he just started laughing because it was, it is, I don't know, pretentious is the right word, but it, it is very much like, okay, I'm just going to throw that in because I can. And here's, here's another fun thing to throw in there. Yeah, I, I view it as 12 songs broken down into A, B, C, D, three at a time. That's, that's funny because as you were saying that, I looked at how it was organized and it looks like the songs that I picked that were the favorites were the third one of every set. Of the hmm, first okay. three sets, so I don't know. Apparently, whatever cool. whatever you're doing with your formula, I seem to appreciate the third one in that set. Even in the midst of the current shelter-in-place order, the Jubilee Cafe is continuing to serve packaged, home-cooked meals free to all every Monday evening, 5 to 6.30 p.m. Meals are available for pickup outside the 6th Street door to the Community United Church of Christ in Champaign, Illinois, 805 South 6th Street in Champaign. Jubilee Cafe's mission remains the same. Feed hungry people by cooking healthy and delicious meals. We are open to anyone who cares to receive a meal. For information on the meal or how to volunteer, Go to the Jubilee Cafe CUCC Facebook page or email us at jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. You mentioned Face in the Crowd was it was probably one of your, your the most personal one for you. I mean, for me, when I listened to Fever Dreams, felt like a very personal song as well. Hmm, sure, yeah. I think part of that is that you, let's just say it sounds like you are revealing more about yourself and it's more autobiographical at that point. Like you mentioned turning 33 and would you say that this was your story that you're telling at that point? 
or were you just kind of reminiscing or fabricating something that idea first for fever dreams because that has that line i've just turned 33 and initially when we wrote it in 2015 it was i've just turned 28 so it's like oh god i gotta update that yeah i'd say that song certainly comes from a personal place but what i did do with this album is especially in the intervening five years from when let's say six of the 12 songs are about five years old the other six have probably been written in the last year. So it's a weird mix of things that have been kind of been on the shelf for a while. But fortunately, they, they seem to work pretty well together. But with Fever Dreams in particular, that one was originally written in a, a very personal place. But then you start looking at experiences that other people you know have had, uh, specifically friends and in the relationships that they've had and the failures that we've all had. And uh, that one became less personal in a way over the last five years. It became more universal based on the experiences of people I know. Face in the Crowd, on the other hand, was one that I had, again, written back in 2015, 2016 as a very acoustic-based song and had an original set of lyrics that I just lost. Just lost it. I kind of remembered the chorus, And it was back in April during the beginning of the quarantine on this like really kind of cloudy, rainy day. And I drove to Boneyard Creek in Champaign just off campus. And I opened the trunk of my car and I just sat in the back of it and tried to write lyrics to it. And they fortunately kind of flowed out. It was very much about a friend who ended up dying last year. And the face in the crowd, the idea with that is someone that is constantly in search of gratification, how sometimes no matter how big the crowd you hang out with, sometimes the that crowd that you close the bar with or that you are out in downtown Champaign every Friday and Saturday, you know, no matter how hard you try, there's something that's you just aren't being fulfilled. There's something missing. You're constantly chasing and constantly wanting. And for him, it was an unfortunate situation where... He never found what it was that made him whole, uh, despite of uh, trying to live that kind of Dionysian lifestyle, you know, of, of um, I guess, decadent lifestyle, if you will. But like, that was the chase. He was never able to find what that thing was, and then eventually just kind of, you know, gave up. So that was one that it was, you know, fresh enough where I tried, and it's presumptive, to write lyrics from the perspective of somebody else, but I tried to do that and tried to get into what he may have been thinking those times when we would see him out and about and he was a different person. You know, he wasn't who we remembered. That was one song that came very quickly when I knew what I wanted it to be about. And I think one afternoon it was the lyrics were good, and I said, "Okay, I think I think this is what fits this the sound of it because it is sonically a kind of bittersweet thing." And then the outro, the last two minutes of it, that guitar solo is very dissonant. It's basically a single note solo almost, and I wanted to try to capture this. I don't know if anger is the right word, but yeah, I guess you know the frustrations and and just put it into this very. Uh, you know, dissonant sounding thing. So that one out of all the songs in the album, out of anything we've ever recorded, if someone said, okay, this may not be a hit single, but what would you want people to know from what you've written? Like what would be the time capsule song? That would be the one I'd send, even though it's not going to, you know, ain't going to be played on the radio. It's too long for that. But uh, that one just really sticks out at the end of the recording process. Do you typically do the exercise of trying to write a song from someone else's perspective? Or would you actually say that you maybe maybe don't necessarily write autobiographically, but you will write from what your perspective of what's going on with somebody else? So, I, I guess th- there's yeah. that kind of distinction. Like, there's the autobiographical or there's the the observational or there's the, the first person of observing someone else. So would you say like that, what would you say is the majority of your writing style or even one that you even prefer to write in? I think you always start off writing. I mean, at least for me, writing autobiographically directly from your own experiences or your insecurities or whatever it may be, because 
that will be closest to you. It's the old adage for any writer, write what you know. You know yourself more than you do anybody else. But all too often, you either get stuck um, or you read back what you wrote about yourself and you realize, okay, either it's like, oh God, is this whiny? I mean, I, I don't want to, nothing wrong with emo music, but I don't want this song to be emo sounding. So then I guess a trick in a way is thinking, okay, you can stick with the same theme, but think of what a friend may have gone through. So for example, um, in the song Wasted Time, which is track five, it's got this like riff heavy chorus. And then the verses are kind of like open and very flowy. And uh, those verses, I was getting stuck on, well, what I had the title, but I'm like, well, what's wasted my time? And okay, I don't know where the hook is here. And then I thought specifically of a friend and the relationship that they had, where at the tail end of it, after years, they had to have been feeling these frustrations. They, they had to be feeling like, oh my God, like all this time later and all the crap and, and that's it. Waste, you know, so when I figured out that, okay, well, that's an example of someone that had, that could view that as wasted time. And then how can I try to write from that perspective? Again, it, it is presumptive to do so, but I try not to, if I am going to go that direction of a third person kind of thing, I try to do so, I, I, I guess, fairly or, or at least knowing through conversations I've had with that person that I'm not projecting anything that would be false or unfair. And, and the, the final component to that is at the end of writing all these lyrics, I tried to see if I could read each one of them in two or three different ways. So uh, even a song that could come off very personal or very much about a relationship or something like that, that you could strip it away and it could be about larger kind of existential things too. Um, and that would be wasted time. The first verse kind of reads like a relationship thing. And the second one kind of reads with uh, society sucks and this existential kind of thing, if, if you were to read it a certain way. So when I was able to see that it could work through a few different lenses, then it's like, okay, that that's that'll work because it's not going to be pigeonholed specifically as, hey, buddy, I wrote this song about you. They might not even know it was written about them because it's just vague enough. Do you have a favorite song on this album that is is the one that you're like most proud of or even just is the one that you feel hits the mark the most sure um facing the crowd is the one i'm most proud of uh, i think that but that would not necessarily be the one that i'd point someone to listen to first you know like if if someone really wanted to take a deep dive um i would i would be super happy if they come back after listening to the album and they say hey you know Track six, that that long one, that that was my favorite. If 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 I get a reaction like that, that'd be amazing. But that one, um, it has a drone. The, the, the opening riff, which is an A, it's got kind of an open chordal structure that I was hoping to kind of get a droning, hypnotic main riff in A. Towards the end of recording, I was able to play the guitar through this effect that made it sound like it's being played through like a Hammond organ speaker, which is a very seventies classic rock trope. And was able to kind of get a shine on you crazy diamond doing na 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 like this. And it's it's buried in the mix a little bit. But um, from the beginning to the, I guess, pre-chorus, which goes with the chord progression we've never really done. The, the vocals, the chorus specifically, and then the outro. That one, I think, just uh, it's unlike anything we've done. I couldn't say necessarily that, oh, yeah, I was listening to Neil Young when I wrote that. or what I, I couldn't pinpoint where it came from. Out of Your Head, the single, that one proud of because it's five years old and I listened to early recordings and it's good, but it's dry. And that was the problem back in April. Why is this dry? It needs something to really lift it off. And that's where the guitar tracks really kind of propelled it. And the bridge has a disco kind of vibe to it for on the floor. And then the outro was a tricky one. Uh, because the outro over 12 measures builds and builds and builds, adds some drums to it and stuff. So that one, I think, is a good starter kit for the album because it, I, I think it's uh, easy enough to digest for a new listener. It's catchy and it is not necessarily easy to pinpoint where it came from. Um, so those those are the two songs that stand out. But 
you know, you could name another one and be like, oh yeah, well, I like that one too. I think more than any album, this feels the most complete. I don't view much of anything as filler. And I know for a fact in the last three albums, there's been, all right, we need a 10th or 11th track here. What are we going to do? So I, we didn't run into that this time. Let's just kind of talk a little bit about where did you feel like you were going with this album? We had kind of exchanged emails about kind of what you wanted to talk about. And you wanted to mention kind of the themes of this album. Like, what did you want to have as like the overarching, if you wanted to be this as a story, the plot points, so to speak? What is the story you want to be telling with this album? Even do you want to just see it as a as a journey, a collection of songs? Yeah, I think, and I'm fine with it. Either one in terms of if someone just views it as uh, I like eight of these 12 songs, I'm going to put a few of them on my playlist or someone on the other hand, that would say, oh, I get it like that. That seems cohesive. It is certainly the most cohesive album that we have. And I tried very deliberately to make sure that the lyrics all went back to this theme of regret, of things that you just can't shake. And I noticed that over the length of this quarantine, you know, an idle mind is the devil's playground, I think is the old term. And God knows we've all had enough time to just sit and think in the last six months. And the more time you have to think, especially for, I mean, I'm I'm introspective probably to a fault. I think about something like a silly thing I might have said, like a joke that didn't land and made me look stupid or foolish. And then it's two hours later and I'm still thinking about it. That's a small example of how I think now more than ever, people are alone in their thoughts. So when you're alone in your thoughts and you start thinking about things that you've done or a pain that you felt or an emptiness that you just can't seem to like scrub away, you know, and that's why I guess in sort of bringing in the experiences of friends of mine too, kept this from becoming, you know, just laser focused on my own experiences and much more hopefully universal in terms of the, the things that you can't extinguish. This is where the cover art comes in. I sent you the the image of it for those just listening to it and they'll see it on our Facebook page and all that or when they get in on, on iTunes. But the, the cover is this photo, photograph of this building that is, it's not even in flames anymore. It's just smoking at this point. It's, it's rubble, but it's these two almost monolithic slabs of wall that are still standing upright even though they're a little bit crooked so clearly this these walls are going to be coming down at some point but they're smoldering and there's these firefighters and they're trying to put this thing out a couple of the guys are running away from it a couple of the guys are facing it and i thought that that image was perfect for the lyrics in that you could look at anything that continues to pop up in your dreams regrets that you have that you can't shake these things are smoldering in our minds, and we can't seem to put it out. We can't figure out whether whether to run towards it or run away from it. And it's all those sort of dichotomies and uncertainties that fed into writing the lyrics. And it just so happened, The Fever Dreams, which is a title I had for a while before a pandemic that may or may not include feverish uh, symptoms. And, you know, like, I know there's the literal connection to it, but uh, that was just a two-word term that I thought applied to the dreams that you wake up from and you're like, oh my God, that again? I dreamt about that again? That happened 20 years ago. Why am I still thinking about that? So uh, that's where thematically, we had not really thought thematically on the last few albums. And I wanted to make a conscious effort. It's by no means a concept record like Tommy. <laughs> it's nothing like that. Uh, but I think lyrically, there is a theme that, a thread that runs throughout. So I, I do like how the 12 songs, even if they're sonically very different, they all come back to that place. Would you ever actually consider doing a concept album <laughs> or no? <laughs> I mean, if, I don't even know what my favorite concept album would be. And I think usually I, for a launching off point, it, you know, before I start writing a new batch of songs, I need to think, man, I really like how that band did that concept album. And, you know, Tommy's one example. I, I think the problem with concept albums, um, not, not that there aren't good ones, but all too often, they're so laser focused on the narrative that, all right, here's a one minute song to take us to the next part of the story. You know, and that was the problem with Tommy, for example, all these little vignettes that are kind of goofy and some work, some don't. But no, I don't, I don't think a concept album's anywhere in the future. But I, I do like the idea of having a theme and in trying to challenge myself to incorporate that through a collection of very different songs and but yet they still have a thread even if they are all over the map genre wise um, that sort of thing 
No, I would I would say probably my favorite would be the wall, but Oh no, that's actually a great example. And it does have some of those shorter tracks, but and I went through a little bit of a Pink Floyd revisiting their catalog back in June. And the wall was never my favorite, but uh, I, I wish you were here. Uh, Dark Side Metal is another uh, favorite of mine. But listening to the wall, even though it's still not my favorite, I I appreciate how much uh, thought went into it. I mean, it, it is really from the way it sounds to the way it's produced and written. You know, Roger Waters killed it, and I know it wasn't really Pink Floyd so much as it was Roger Waters and the guys from Pink Floyd. But that is that is one really good example of a concept album that works. Are you already thinking about the next album or are you just like, okay, let's see. Let me at least rest for a little sure, bit. Sure, yeah. Uh, there's been enough time because I mentioned earlier how the bulk of this was done in June. And not that it's been sitting idle, but it's been minor tweaks here and there. I haven't been consumed with it the last two months or so. So, I've had enough of a breather. And now as I'm finishing things up and getting the final mixes done, there is this urge like, well, what the hell? You got time on your hands. And I've never really just challenge myself to sit down and okay now go write a song all of these came very organically but they had plenty of time to come having as much fun as i did piecing an album together and unfortunately not knowing when our situations are going to change in terms of i mean i'd love to say yes we're gonna get out there we're gonna play a bunch of shows for this i don't know maybe uh, <laughs> and that's the other unfortunate that that's the biggest unfortunate part of this for music is that you know it certainly interrupted our our normal way of recording not that that's a terrible thing and i can't wait to get back to the old style that we've had and and get back in the workshop with these guys but you know the idea of letting these songs grow live I, i'll be honest you mentioned everything goes and as time went on i i usually want the studio tracks to be at a place where we could play it pretty much exactly like it is on the record but then I thought, well, I don't even know if we're going to be able to play these live, so put it in there, and then we'll figure out a live arrangement if we get back to that point. I know we will. I, I know that the situation will resolve itself and live music will start, but it may take some time, and that's why for this one, it was really, all right, kitchen sink, put it in there, and, and whether or not we can actually do that on stage is kind of irrelevant right now, at least. You mentioned something about, you know, your your reissue in, in five years. Are you actually <laughs> thinking of uh, of doing a, a physical release of this at, at any point? or it, It's the financial part of it, you know, and I, I know, like vinyls, for example, would love to get it pressed on vinyl. I don't know how many we would sell to make sure that we recoup that cost or at least don't go too far in the hole for it. And it would have to be, if we want all 12 songs on it, it would have to be a double vinyl, so... There goes the cost even more up and up. And, you know, it's one of those things, too, that with any physical release, we used to do CDs. Then with the live album and then with this one, we didn't because most cars that you get off the lot now, well, there's no CD player. And most everyone's got Spotify or they got iTunes. So, yeah, it's I, I would love, I mean, even getting the orders of CDs for the first three albums and opening up that box and seeing the the plastic wrap over your, you know, that that's a cool feeling. We could look at that for the, for the time being, the next goal after this drops is to go back to hard folk and much like we did with elegantly wasted, bring that up to par sonically. Uh, the mix is very flawed. That is something that it's, I don't want a George Lucas special edition it. I'm not going to add new tracks or anything to it, but I know that it can sound better. We're going to focus on that. We're going to focus on the very first album, which has kind of been, we've kind of hit it because, you know, <laughs> it makes us blush a little bit. It's kind of like, oh God, I can't believe we did that. But maybe find a way to get that to a point where um, we'll make that available in a, in a better sounding edition. So, yeah, you know, the cool thing about being just kind of like a under the radar, I mean, we just put Elegantly Wasted up there on the outlets. And then for anyone that's listening to it the first time, that's the, the only way they know how to listen to those songs. They don't remember the sort of um, amateur mixing quality of the initial one. So uh, that's that's the next step is to make sure that the pre-existing catalog sounds as good as it can. We can wash our hands of it and then move forward to... Uh, new tracks, hopefully sometime later this year. 
Is there anything else that you'd like to mention about this album or anything? Not in, not in particular. I mean, it, it is Unorthodox for us. It, it is me and Mike are the only two band members on the album. And it was not a conscious choice so much as it was, you know, the realities of when everything hit in mid-March. And we kind of had to scrap the initial plans that we had to make it a more collaborative album. You know, I, I don't know if regret, if I'd use the word regret for it, because certainly I'd much prefer that the entire band was on it. But at the end of the day, I also think that music is oftentimes a product of its environment and its time and its place. And in that regard, you know, even if this album is a bit of an anomaly in terms of the personnel that's on it, it's still very much a decadence record. It feels as if thematically all the things that are talked about on it could just as easily be thought about when viewing it through the lens of this year. And I mentioned the idle mind and all the time people have had to just sit and think. Uh, this one, it, it would, would have worked, I think, in 2018, but I think it works better now. And that's another reason I didn't want to hold on to it indefinitely. And uh, I wanted to get it out now because I feel like it's relevant to what's going on and hopefully can resonate with some people. Well, Mike, thank you for taking the time to talk with me about your upcoming album, fever dreams and just the process and like how you're coping with getting this album out putting it even together just with two members and it's amazing that we and and also in some ways kind of sad that we have to deal with that in this time oh yeah i I appreciate you taking the time to tell me all about your your upcoming album well thanks for having me i i love talking music with you and uh for me yeah, I mean, I got the sports podcast and everything, but there's been no sports. Uh, so it is a nice reprieve to talk about music and, uh, you know, the process of recording this. It was, I don't always mind that. It was a very isolated kind of thing. So it's like I, I would record something, I'd add it to the mix and then rinse and repeat. And there's, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to share along the way. Because, you know, we, we weren't able, because of the situation, to collaborate as much as we wanted to. So, that's where an outlet like this is much appreciated. I know that anyone, any other musician you talk to, it's the same thing. It's fun talking about the process and, and about music in general. So, uh, thanks for the platform and, and the opportunity. Thanks for listening to The Champagne is also a band podcast. This is Mike Carpenter from Decadence, episode 37, reminding you to check out Fever Dreams, our fourth album, coming out Friday, August 21st, 2020, on Bandcamp and other streaming platforms. And also, we have a live stream event on YouTube and Facebook to search for Decadence on Thursday, August 20th at 8 p.m. Central. Remember, great music is out there, so go find it where you live. Almost have an NPR voice, it's so good. South <laughs> <laughs> on the inside.